From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In a cemetery in Leadville, the figure of an Irish miner looks east towards his homeland, a new memorial to the many immigrants who lost their lives in the silver rush of the late 1800s. And it speaks to anyone who's had an arduous journey to try to get to a place that's better for themselves. You don't have to be Irish. You just got to know about the struggle. The Irish government invested not just in this artwork, but in the quest to identify miners and their families buried in unmarked graves. They really want to support projects that promote finding their lost children. You know, a million people died in the famine there, and another million emigrated. And the Irish government wants to know where they are. And later, Grand Junction's sizable Hawaiian community pulls together to help Maui. As a listener, you've heard the call for member support. But maybe you wonder, do they really need me? Well, the simple answer is yes. CPR gets none of its funding from the state and only a small fraction from federal grants. The vast majority comes from the community, and over half of that comes from individual contributions. That's why your gift of any amount matters. Start your all-important membership at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Infant Abbott, stillborn. William Abbott, 31 years old. Lena Atchison, three months old. Laura Albertson. Names read aloud at a church in Allahees, Ireland, a former mining town. Peter Anderson. 70 years old. Matthew Anderson, 40 years old. They connect Allahees to another mining community, 4,400 miles away, Leadville. They are the names of Irish men, women, and children who'd emigrated to Colorado in the late 1800s, only to meet their demise rather than their fortune. We know that not all of these brave souls found happiness and success. The same conditions that promised opportunities also posed grave, often mortal dangers. That is the Irish ambassador to the U.S., Geraldine Byrne-Nason. She was in Leadville this past weekend for the unveiling of a memorial to these immigrant families. Many of these individuals buried in unmarked graves, whose names required painstaking research to unearth. The memorial features a sculpture of a miner with the tools of his trade, and we'll meet the sculptor shortly. First, some perspective from Lisa Switzer, president of the Irish Network of Colorado, and Leadville historian Kathleen Fitzsimmons. We spoke at Evergreen Cemetery in Leadville, where this monument stands. Kathleen, describe the appeal of Leadville, and yet the environment here that led to hundreds of immigrants, many Irish being buried in unmarked graves. I think to any of the immigrants coming to Leadville, just as they did to anywhere in the American West, was the promise and hope of being able to fulfill their version of the American dream, being forced out of Ireland from such you know, horrific conditions to be able to come with this promise of going west. It's sort of the same thing as why we buy lottery tickets today. We're hoping to get to the next level of something that could be magical. And so people came here with the trades that they had in their pockets and the gift of the English language so that they could 
uh, work in the mines and hopefully make better and send home some money. But they were miners, many of them, in Ireland. So how is this trading up? Well, it's leaving subjugation and poverty and a famine. You know, the push-pull factors, I think, are so complex. Trying to trade up, maybe it was just trying to survive. What were the conditions they faced when they got here? Because we're talking early deaths and we're talking the inability to pay for a marker. Absolutely. The conditions that they met as they immigrated here were ones of just trying to scrap your way through and survive. If they made it through the travel across the Atlantic Ocean, then they had to navigate and travel west. In Leadville specifically, they were working for $3 a day, and you did not have many workers' rights at all. So we don't have weekends. We don't have paid time off. We don't have any guaranteed health care. And so the living conditions in which they clung to life were very arduous. Trying to live at 10,000 feet is a challenge on anybody. Trying to have a healthy pregnancy that is carried to term is a huge challenge. And then a baby with tiny lungs to be able to live and breathe the air up here contributes to the incredibly high number of stillborn babies that we have in these unmarked graves. We have about 10% of all of the graves are stillborn babies. Lisa Switzer, president of the Irish Network Colorado. It's particularly moving, devastating to see the names of the names we know of children surrounding this sculpture. It really is. And it's so profound to see it come to completion and see those names up there that will be lit up even at night. These people would have not been known at all had we not started this project. It's such a gift, really, to be able to give these people life again, if you will. And so part of this project was to identify the unidentified. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, yes. And so while we know their names, we don't know where they're all buried. Um, We have parish records. So we were able to find the names. But if you walk out into the cemetery, you don't even maybe even know where a grave is. It's very difficult to see they're sunken and unmarked. And before we started this project, it was pretty, I wouldn't say derelict, but it it needed some attention. That's for sure. And with the fastidious records that Annunciation Catholic Church kept, they did, when they could, mark the plot and lot for the folks who they know of. And so we've been able to help quite a few descendants find where their ancestor is. To our surprise, about 25% of the graves share more than one person in there. They are either buried sequentially because they died within the same time period, perhaps from a smallpox epidemic, for example. But there are several graves who are separated by quite a few years, and we're not quite sure why. And those are just stories that we need to dive into and learn about. There was talk of making Leadville Colorado's capital at one point. I mean, that's how bustling this place was. Absolutely. It's hard to imagine now when you walk down the quiet city streets of Leadville that we had 10 times the population, 10 times the buildings that we do now. And you could hear eight different languages in a city block. The amount of critical wealth that came out of Leadville really created Colorado. So I feel like it still is the sympathetic, emotional, sentimental capital of Colorado. To me, it's the center of the universe. (laughs) 
maybe we should be clear about what these miners were mining that led to all that wealth. So the very first exploration in Colorado, in Leadville specifically, was placer mining for gold. And they kept getting their placer workings mucked up with this heavy gray sand. And finally, two miners got it assayed, measured for what it was, realized it was up to 75% silver. And the silver rush was on. And the silver kings were born. And silver, then manganese, zinc... Cadmium were also part and byproducts of the lead sulfide that made Leadville so rich. I think of the signs I have seen in documentaries and old photographs, Lisa, that say Irish need not apply. Did that happen in Colorado? Was mining a kind of option that existed then for a populace that had faced a lot of bigotry? I would say for sure. And I think, at least knowing my own heritage, most of the women who would have come would have been working in someone's kitchen, in someone's house. They weren't given the best jobs. One of the things we were trying to do with some of our fundraising is say that we are at an event that our ancestors never would have been invited to unless they were washing the dishes. Uh, The other thing that the Irish had going for them, Kathleen alluded to, they did speak English, even though sometimes you can't understand it. They did speak English, which was a benefit compared to some of the other immigrants who did not have that working for them. Irish Americans as a group have risen to a level of economic and political uh, achievement that I think that our ancestors would not have dreamt of. And I feel in every Irish American I speak to feels a great responsibility to then give back to the community and give back to the environment in which they live. Yes. I mean, eventually the United States would elect its first Irish president, its first Catholic president. And, you know, it occurred to me that he too died before his time. Is there something to learn from the story of Irish immigrants to the United States? I think there's something to learn from any immigrant story, uh, regardless of where they're going, of the sacrifices and the push and pull factors that would make someone need to move themselves bodily from their home to the hopes or the promises of a new area. And I think for the Irish, what we can learn is how to be able to use the gifts of your ancestors to then make that world a better place. What Irish population remains in Leadville And what connection, Lisa, do you feel to those buried here? Well, being an Irish-American, I mean, we're so proud of our heritage. And the grit, you know, there's that term Irish scrapper. And I love being called that because it's a testimony to what we're talking about with just sheer grit and determination. I know my family, my parents were not educated, but they wanted me to have a better life. And I think that's what people did in Ireland when they said goodbye to their children. They never knew if they'd see them again. And if they crossed the Mississippi, they were more likely than not to never be heard from again. If they ended up in Boston or Philly or New York, it was different. But they could come out here and never be heard from again. So there are people in Ireland saying, I think I might have found somebody there. And it's really compelling. And is there a living Irish population in Leadville today? I think that, you know, Leadville still has a lot of Irish Americans who who live here. And I think that this, um, we have hosted a practice St. Patrick's Day parade for over the last 50 years. It's been a strong element of Leadville's culture. And we're very proud of our, of the diversity that we have in Leadville. Well, practice parade. Why isn't it a real parade? 
Well, for a couple of reasons, you can always get better at parading. And the weather is always better in September than it is in March. And so we have to practice every September 17th just to make sure we get it right. And then we'll do it again in March, but it's usually snowing. Before we meet the sculptor, why a memorial and why now? This is a project that's been in the making for several years, and one night we just decided we were going to do this thing. And so we wrote a grant to the Irish government, the first one in 2018, thinking I had two weeks to write it, and I thought we wouldn't even get a look. And we did. And we received a grant then, and then we received three subsequent grants. And one of the things I want to say is this sculpture started out to be about... 12 inches, maybe 16 inches tall. That's what we thought we'd do. And because of the Irish-American, Irish commitment and love for this project, it became this huge thing that you see today. So it grew because it needed to have a story told. And it speaks to anyone who's had an arduous journey to try to get to a place that's better for themselves. So you don't have to be Irish. You just got to know about the struggle. The Irish government made tens of thousands of dollars available for this. And so the Irish people feel that this is a must. The Irish government is one of the few governments I know of that is so committed to finding their children in what they call the diaspora. They have a huge white paper they've written on it, and they really want to support projects that promote finding their lost children because, you know, a million people died in the famine there and another million emigrated. And the Irish government wants to know where they are. So yes, they've given us over $200,000 for this project. We've said these immigrants came for a better life. We said that many of them did not find it, but some of them did. And I I realize standing with you in a cemetery, I don't want to be unfairly gloomy here. I think for the, the paupers who we are memorializing, they didn't have a happy ending. And we believe and trust and we know that many of their descendants did. And I think that's where the silver lining is, is that having that, that homage to the people who, who are laid here and we can now bring their names to light and bring them up. And the success of the Irish-American community cannot be underscored and it is due to the trials and tribulations of our ancestors. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you so much. So much. Leadville historian Kathleen Fitzsimmons, along with the president of the Irish Network Colorado, Lisa Switzer. We spoke at the Evergreen Cemetery in Leadville at the unveiling of the Irish Miners Memorial. The sculptor of the figure, dubbed Liam, is Irish artist Terry Brennan. We also spoke in the Evergreen Cemetery in Leadville. Terry, really glad to meet you. And you. Describe Liam for us. Liam, the bronze statue is a representation of my understanding of what an Irish-American would be thinking in revering his own culture and where he came from and where he was going. Will you describe the position he's in and the direction he's facing? He's facing east, which is the general direction of where he came from, from Ireland. His pose is down on one knee with his hand on a harp the harp being the national symbol of Ireland. Most people think it's here think it's a, a shamrock, but it's actually not. It's a harp. His view, though, of Ireland is obstructed. It's not that there's a clear line of sight from his face to Ireland. What's in front of him? Well, the action in the pose for me was that he has an axe in his other hand and facing him is a big rock, right? This being the Rocky Mountains, 
I synopsized this in my head to have a figure represented as carving his culture into and out of the Rocky Mountains. Wow, I got goosebumps at that thought. And of course, the rock also represents hope, right? What's inside. Yes, and it's something bigger than him. Who's the model? Who did you fashion Liam after? Well, I said to myself, I need a a long, skinny model. And then I realized that my daughter and her boyfriend were coming back from Peru on a plane, and he's a long, skinny fella called Liam McHugh. That's where the, the statue got its name from. They're calling him Liam O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan being a really popular name down in West Cork, where all the miners came from. And I want to point out the connection between Leadville and one region of Ireland in particular. That region is Allahy's in West Cork. Leadville is the most remote city in America, and Allahy's is one of the most remote villages in Ireland. So they're well suited together, even though Leadville's two miles up in the air and Allahy's is down at the sea level. The association being that the mine closed down in Allahy's, and this was announced one Sunday morning at Mass by the local priest, don't go to work tomorrow, lads, there's nothing there anymore, it's closed. So they all had no work, and there was no welfare state back then, so they all had to up and leave. That's the impetus for so many of them coming to Leadville. Well, you had people who had nothing, and then you had people who had absolutely nothing. Neil Armstrong had more information about the moon when he was going there than those people had coming here about what was here. What details were you sure to include as you sculpted him? And and how was it to sculpt him? It took seven months, and COVID provided the time for that because everything was a big shutdown in Ireland. So I had the time, the materials were easy enough to source, and I just got busy in a big workshop I have underneath my house. And elements were the axe, it being the implement of the miner, the harp being the symbol of Ireland, and I gave it four strings because there are four provinces in Ireland. And then the figure itself, dressed as a miner, with boots and a hat, and an expression on his face. One walks to the sculpture by going up a spiral mound and surrounding the sculpture of Liam are glass panels with names of people who succumbed in Leadville. I also noticed at the base of Liam, there was like an old rusty can and a shoe, items from another time. What is that? They're items that were found in the mines here. There are little door handles and also axe heads and all sorts of other little things in the trench around the base. It makes it feel so close. It does. It's a very intimate piece. Yeah. Fired in Loveland, forged in Loveland. Yeah, it was too expensive to forge it in Ireland. So they forged it over here where it costs significantly less to do. So we flew it over in a big box on a plane that left Dublin and went to Belfast and went to London, then apparently went to either... Los Angeles or JFK and then down to here. And we arranged a customs clearance agent in New Jersey to handle all the paperwork, which was incredible. Like we had 60 pages of documents to go to. Have you ever sculpted something of this size? How tall is Liam? From his knee to his head is about six feet. So it's 10 to 15% bigger than actual life. But that's because on advice from a sculptor in Dublin 
called John Call, who was very helpful and gave me great advice for this. He said, if you make it the same size as real life, it'll look half the size outdoors. That's what happens when you take something outdoors and you put it up on a pedestal. It shrinks visually. Is this the largest piece you've ever done? Yes, absolutely. Will it be hard to leave Liam behind and go home? Well, I get to go home with the real one. My daughter's boyfriend's over here as well. (laughs) He came over, and so did she, by the way, as well. Thank you so much for meeting me here. And thank you for all the questions and the attention. Irish artist Terry Brennan, who sculpted Liam at the heart of the new Irish Miners Memorial in Leadville. You can see photos from Kevin Beatty at CPR.org. Brennan's brothers Mick and Sean also traveled to Colorado for the dedication. They're musicians. And here's a little of the impromptu jam session that broke out in this cemetery after this past weekend's unveiling. Come on now, John. Time you were getting your pit boots on. And Colorado Matters continues in just a bit as the Hawaiian community on the western slope rallies to help Maui. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Every fall, adventurous trail runners head from Uray to Telluride by going straight up a 13,000-foot mountain pass. The Imogene Pass race is beloved, partly because it's so hard. If you don't like it, you have no business being here. The mountains don't care. They'll wipe you out in a minute if you give them any chance at all. Meet the man who says he started this Colorado tradition by accident in 1974. Story and pictures at CPR.org. In Grand Junction, Colorado Mesa University alumni want to help victims of the Maui fires. Bronson Henricks is part of a decades-long tradition of CMU Mavericks hailing from Hawaii. He's raising money for Lahaina. There's a strong connection between Hawaii, the people of Hawaii, and uh, Western Colorado, and then the Grand Valley specifically. And so kind of what we've been sharing with folks is that it's our kuleana, our responsibility to help our extended ohana. Henricks is past president of the Hawaii chapter of the CMU Alumni Association. So many Hawaiians have connected with Grand Junction that indeed there's a chapter. In 2019, I spoke with then city councilman Phil Pea and CMU student Bo Flores about how this special relationship came to be. Words spread, Hawaiian tells Hawaiian tells Hawaiian. Is that how this happens? Uh, coconut, coconut wireless. Coconut wireless, that's what we call <laughs> it. Coconut wireless. Yeah. I feel like you can say that, I can't. <laughs> no, don't I worry. <laughs> and as we said, this network is now seeking to raise money, $20,000 for the Maui disaster, which killed an estimated 97 people. Henricks says businesses in Grand Junction, including Hawaiian-owned ones, are taking part. Henricks is from the island of Oahu, but feels close to Maui. So it's just this spirit of caring, of love. I mean, aloha translated uh, into English is love, and it can mean a lot of different things too. Ultimately, that spirit of aloha, that need to take care of one another, 
rings true for me. And then, you know, I've got family on Maui. Thankfully, you know, they weren't in Lahaina. They're in Kahului. The first question we get is, do you know anyone that was in the fire? No, I don't. But I can guarantee you, I know someone that does. Or I have a direct connection to someone that does. And so does everyone else. And we will link to the campaign later today at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. The fall semester is in full swing. So what realities face educators in Colorado? Certainly lagging test scores, a lack of funding, and politics in the classroom. Amy Baca-Ohlers is president of the state's largest teachers union, the Colorado Education Association. She spoke with CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. I wanted to get a bit into some of teachers' worries. We hear a lot about academic drops in math and reading stemming from the pandemic. And I'm wondering what you're hearing from teachers about what would help them the most right now. Well, certainly what I hear a lot from our educators across the state is that they need time to focus on and meet students' needs. Our students have been coming into our classrooms the last couple years with really increased mental health concerns, anxiety, fears, stress. And so our educators are really saying, you know, we haven't had time to slow down and focus on making sure our students are healthy mentally so that we can focus on their academic learning. And that's a real stress for our educators. They really bear that on their shoulders, feeling this inability to focus on and meet students' um, mental health needs. CPR did a big series on that for a year where we talked to a bunch of teens and we looked at what is stressing them out, making them anxious. But I kind of want to hear from you, what are the teachers, what do they believe is at the root of it? It's not just that they experienced a a global pandemic. For many of them, they lost a family member, sometimes a parent or, you know, a grandparent, a sibling. Many lost their homes. They had to move. Their parents lost their jobs. Um, So there's just a lot of transition and change happening in students' lives, but also just the change, you know, for some it wasn't that extreme, just the change in our world. And so our students... They experience what, you know, we experience as adults, and they oftentimes don't have the, the ability to navigate that cope in the way that some of us as adults do. And so I really believe that they're just experiencing a lot of what we experienced as adults, but we haven't had the time or the resources to support them through that. Yeah, and I think we forget sometimes at a key developmental phase, they were in front of a screen for, you know, a year and a half, two years, and then suddenly they're in front of all their peers. So yeah, as adults, I think sometimes we forget that and what that's like. I want to switch to the teacher shortage. How would you compare it to five years ago? I'm trying to get a sense of how it is now. We had a pretty significant educator shortage prior to COVID. Now that we are where we are, it's just been exacerbated. We've heard anecdotally that there's not one school district that started the school year fully staffed. That's concerning. It you know it creates a lot of workload issues for our educators. It creates more instability for our students. I think sometimes we don't hear about it because our districts and schools are doing what they can to make it work, but oftentimes that's added stress on the classroom teacher. They're either combining classes, so you have a really large class size, 
or you have course offering that can't happen. So that impacts students. Just to give listeners an idea, take Steamboat Springs. The district had 45 openings, including some for classroom teachers. Uh, This was just this week. Moffat County to the west has 55 openings, including for high school teachers. Many of the bigger districts, I noticed, have more than 200 openings. Several large districts were able to boost their starting salary for this year. And I wondered, have you heard if that helped at all with recruiting? Well, I certainly think that it has helped with recruiting, um, but, you know, we still have the underlying problem that even though we had some districts that really, you know, worked with our educators to utilize that funding that came from the buy-down of the budget stabilization factor, the funding that came from the state, to put that towards salaries, but our salaries are still significantly low compared to the national averages. We live in a, in a state where it is very expensive to live, whether that's, you know, affording housing or just gas and food. And our educators still report that it is very difficult to make ends meet on an educator salary. Many are still reporting working two to three jobs just to make ends meet for their own families. One of our major teaching colleges reports I think 40% down in terms of students selecting the teaching profession compared to five years ago. So there's the wage, there's the working conditions, there's the cost of living and perhaps people choosing careers that, that may pay more. Right now, let's take working conditions. What are some immediate things that a school could do to try to improve the working conditions for teachers? Again, it's kind of these compounding problems. When we have an educator shortage, the workload of educators increases when you have to increase your class size. You know, not only does it mean more bodies in your classroom, but it's more grading, it's more planning. And so it all kind of compounds and adds up. So, you know, we really need to do those things to address the educator shortage because that will affect workload. But also we hear things all the time from our educators about, you know, autonomy. They want things like time to plan, you know, thoughtful and meaningful lessons instead of sitting in meetings and, you know, doing things that eat up their time. They want to have some autonomy and ownership over their time. So those, you know, certainly are things that uh, districts can work with educators to address. And and then also addressing uh, educator mental health. It's something that, you know, we have seen in other industries where people are really looking at that work-life balance. That becomes really challenging in an education setting with all the expectations and things that are placed on our educators. So that is something that I really encourage districts to prioritize and work on because it is having an impact on why people are saying they will leave the profession. What would you say to young people or people considering a change in profession to encourage them to enter teaching? Well, you know, I believe that uh, being an educator is the most noble profession that there is. In fact, it's the profession that creates all other professions. And, you know, while there can be challenges and things that we struggle with as educators, the The rewards are so fulfilling. You know, when a child has that light bulb moment, when you do a lesson and kids just get it and they light up, that just 
it can be so encouraging and inspiring. And to know that you truly are making a difference on the the future of our world, that's something that not all people can say in their professions. I mean, just about everybody can remember a teacher, Mr. Melnichuk. That's how I got interested in social studies. We know there have been some school districts where political and culture wars have taken over the school boards, but I'd like your perspective outside those districts. Is the average Colorado teacher being impacted by those wars, or have they been able to insulate themselves somewhat? It does have an impact. You know, not only is this a Colorado issue, this is a national issue, this kind of politicizing of our public schools, of our curriculums, of our educators. And it is impacting our educators. You know, I went all around the state talking with educators at the start of this school year, and many did share with me that they are worried about what they say in a classroom, what might get twisted or recorded or taken out of context. And that's a difficult place to be as an educator. Most educators, they love the part of our job, which is about teaching kids how to think critically, how to analyze text, how to determine what the nugget is out of a piece of literature or something, but not teach kids what to think. And so that accusation that that's what's happening in our schools is really wearing on some people. In fact, for the first time ever in our all-member survey that we conducted just last year, we had many people respond saying that it's one of the reasons why they would leave the profession. So there's a measure on the ballot, Proposition HH, a big property tax cut that would also allow the state to keep additional revenue above the current spending limit and repurpose some of it for schools. How would that money help school districts and would it ultimately solve Colorado's never-ending school funding issue? Well, the CEA is certainly supporting Proposition HH. We have seen the impacts of the underfunding of our schools, you know, more than a decade, an entire generation of students who have never attended a fully funded public school in Colorado. You know, and that has meant large class sizes, lack of access to mental health supports, so many things for our students. So Proposition HH is a step towards moving us towards really addressing this underfunding of our schools. It will allow our school districts to hire the staff needed so that we can have manageable and reasonable class sizes so that we can address workload issues, but most importantly, so that we can have the resources and supports that our students need to thrive in our public schools. Will this solve our funding problems in Colorado? No. But is it a step in the right direction to ensure that not only are we providing property owners with much-needed tax relief, while at the same time protecting funding for K-12 education? Yes, and that is why we are supporting Proposition HH. I saw a survey in Ed Week that said a majority of educators find that state-mandated tests aren't useful in classrooms despite feeling a large amount of pressure. They still feel a tremendous amount of pressure to have their students perform well on these exams. I know Colorado has winnowed a bit the exams, the number of standardized tests. Do you think the balance is right or is it still taking up too much time and not providing value to teachers? I certainly think that testing is something that we still need to continue to address. Um, We do hear from a lot of our educators that, you know, there is a significant amount of time that is taken towards teaching towards the test that, you know, 
doesn't allow for educators to do a lot of the creative lessons or things that really, you know, engage and spark learning for students. And we do hear that our educators want tests that give them more immediate, actionable results. And so there is still an imbalance of what the state standardized test is providing to educators and how is it really impacting educators teaching and students learning and so we certainly think that's still an ongoing conversation that we need to continue to have to bring some more balance into not only the use of the standardized test but how they're impacting schools and students and educators overall. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. CPR's Jenny Brundine speaking with Amy Baca-Olert, who leads the Colorado Education Association, which represents more than 39,000 K-12 teachers and support personnel. Back in a moment with a home-brewing hero. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Some of the state's most prolific serial killers terrorized southern Colorado in the 1860s and took dozens of lives before a tracker killed, then beheaded them. It was said those heads were preserved in a jar of whiskey and put on display. Who were the bloody Espinosas and what happened to their heads? Read about what is history and what is legend at CPR.org. The hunt for methane leaks is on, and the Environmental Defense Fund will do it from space. Next year, the group will launch a first-of-its-kind satellite to pinpoint leaks that worsen climate change. CPR's Sam Brash reports that it's under construction in Colorado. Let's start with a quick primer on methane. Here's the problem. The gas is invisible, odorless, and everywhere. Landfills and wetlands release it. Cows burp it out at farms and feedlots. And since it's the main component of natural gas, it leaks from drilling rigs, pipelines, even your gas stove. Now, carbon dioxide is the biggest contributor to climate change, and it's easier to pin down. Just look for smokestacks or tailpipes. Methane is like CO2's pesky younger brother. It's hiding somewhere in the house wreaking havoc, but it's hard to find exactly where. And while it doesn't persist as long, it traps 80 times more heat in the first 20 years after its release. It's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity because it's very much driving the immediate climate impacts that we're already starting to see. This is John Goldstein, a policy advocate for the Environmental Defense Fund. His organization's new $90 million satellite called MethaneSat is all about seizing that opportunity. Launching early next year, the finishing touches are being put on it uh, right here in this building uh, at Ball Aerospace in Boulder. Inside the cavernous factory, we see the satellite through a window into a spotless clean room. It looks like a stocky cube with a visor, solar panels tucked in against either side. I could only watch workers prep it for a final test, not record them. That's because Bob, yeah, it's the same company branded on your mason jars, now makes military satellites. Goldstein admits that's somewhat odd company for an NGO group, but it's not really novel for EDF. I think it's part of a... Of a continuing process around harnessing science to lead to, you know, environmental improvement. That work started more than a decade ago, just as fracking kicked off a natural gas boom in the U.S. The problem is that nobody knew exactly how much was leaking. And so what EDF did is go out 
and do a series of 16 scientific studies actually sampling these sites. That peer-reviewed research, partially funded by a nonprofit, showed leaks were 60% greater than government estimates. That helped push Colorado and later the federal government to adopt new regulations. Methane Sat is meant to replicate the strategy on a global stage, says Steve Hanberg, EDF's chief scientist. We have essentially no data over Russia, very little data over the Middle East and other parts of Southeast Asia. The satellite will pinpoint leaks and discover which countries are underreporting their emissions. Results will then be posted publicly online. Hamburg says that'll shame polluters and their governments, and it'll hopefully draw the attention of oil and gas investors. After all, methane is natural gas. They're wasting product. They know how to reduce it. There's absolutely no reason that these emissions need to occur. That prospect, using data to improve oil and gas operations, is what attracted pilot Chris Weaver. A friend of mine, he asked if I'd be interested, and I said yes, because this is a very noble project. Weaver flies Methane Air, a modified methane-tracking Learjet. The EDF is using it to test the same sensor headed into space aboard the satellite. I caught him after a recent flight over an oil and gas basin here in Colorado. Once these results publish, he's confident operators will fix any leaks. The bottom line determines whether they can survive or not. So if capturing methane can be done in a very economical manner, it's going to work, without question. It's a theory worth pursuing, says Zine Lott, a climate scientist with the University of Colorado Boulder and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. But she says that comes with a caveat. Reducing oil and gas methane emission alone is not going to magically save the whole climate crisis situation. We have to go much further than that. In fact, her own research suggests oil and gas isn't the main factor behind a recent spike in global methane levels. Some advanced chemistry suggests it's actually microbes in wetlands. Microbes kicked into overdrive by hotter weather and more rain. The possibility that the climate feedback is already happening, that tells us how bad the situations may be. Bad because feedback loops could drive out-of-control warming. And it's why she says humanity has to focus, not just on improving oil and gas operations, but ending its reliance on fossil fuels altogether. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. When it comes to craft beer, Colorado is home to a pioneer. Charlie Papazian founded the American Homebrewers Association and the Great American Beer Festival. Well, today, Metropolitan State University of Denver opens its new brewing education lab, and it is named for Papazian. I won't forget a 2006 interview with him about his book, Microbrewed Adventures, a lupulin-filled journey to the heart and flavor of the world's great craft beers. Charlie, welcome to Colorado Matters. I'm glad to be here. So what exactly is lupulin? Lupulin is the small golden gland at the base of the hop flower petals. And the lupulin is what gives beer the hop flavor, bitterness, and aroma. So fair to say that lupulin is a staple in in the beer world. It's very much a staple. I would say it's what gives beer personality. Tell us about African sorghum beer and where you first tasted it. The first place I've ever tasted African sorghum beer was in Zimbabwe. I had a great adventure, which I describe in my book. I uh, 
ask a taxi driver to take me to a, a local beer garden. And he, he looked at me kind of funny and said, you want to do what? And I said, I want to go to the beer garden. I'm a brewer. And he was trying to put two and two together. And he saw my enthusiasm. And it was an adventure I wanted to take ever since I had heard of the beer gardens of Bulawayo in a Princeton University study on nutrition and beer. Huh. So he made a deal with me. He said, well, I'll take you out there and I'll bring you back only if you pay for my beer. So I went into the beer garden. There were thousands of people drinking out of, of buckets. I shared my bucket of beer with a taxi driver and a group of friends that I made very quickly, as one does with when drinking beer. Being there in that environment, the beer tasted good. It was enjoyable. The camaraderie, the experience, the ambiance, it all made it happen. So you had, uh, as you write, a pretty pleasant experience trying it, but then you brought the recipe home, tried brewing it here, and the results, I guess, were less than stellar, or certainly the reaction among friends. Well, sorghum beer is an unusual beverage. It's still fermenting. It has kind of a beige, pinkish color. It has the consistency and texture of a very dilute porridge. It also has the smell of yogurt, yeast fermentation. That's what in part gives it all the the nutritional value. And it's not what a typical beer drinker would think of as beer. When I brought back a homebrew kit, it worked. It tasted like I recalled having in Zimbabwe, but you had to be there, basically. You had to be there there back in Africa (laughs) in that ambiance. It's clear from this book that beer is more than just an alcoholic beverage to you. Uh, In fact, you write that it's a gateway to one's imagination. What, what do you mean by that? I look at beer as not the goal of what I do, but a means. It's a means to experience the world. And I have uh, I've been involved with the passion of beer brewing since 1970 when I was going to school at the University of Virginia as a 21-year-old student. So my interest in beer progressed over the years through various experiences and coming to Boulder, Colorado, teaching beer-making classes, starting the American Home Brewers Association, which has transformed to the Brewers Association and morphed into the Great American Beer Festival and a lot of other things in the books that I've written. But beer is the pathway, and the real experience is, for me, all the people and all the the wonderfulness of life experiences that beer is a gateway to for me. I want to talk to you about a a kind of evolution. Um, Some microbrewers are now called craft brewers. What's, What's the difference there? What's happened? Back in 1978, when the first microbrewers were emerging, we didn't have the word microbrewers. Yeah. It just so happened that one of our staff on our association was working for the microcomputer industry at the time, which was just emerging. And these small, small breweries, that's what they were called, these small breweries were, were beginning to pop up here and there, one here, one there. And he just said, well, it's kind of like the industry I'm in. It's kind of like microbreweries. And the name has stuck. You know, the microbrewery name really defines the, the startups and the small entrepreneurial businesses that are really the foundation of the craft beer movement. You know, uh, there are breweries such as right here in this area, Great Divide, Flying Dog um, in Colorado, the, uh, the Boulder Beer Company. 
they all started out as microbreweries. They but have grown. Yeah, they have grown. I mean, they've become in some ways less, well, a bit more mainstream. Well, I wouldn't say that. Ah. I, would, I wouldn't say a bit more ma- mainstream. I think they've been very, very loyal to the types of beers that they're making. Uh-huh. And so we define craft brewers as those brewers that are still, uh, their main product is still all malt and a specialized beer style. Not It's not the mainstream light lager beers that are driving their businesses. It's the beer style such as India Pale Ale or Pale Ale or a, a specialty lager like, such as a Bach beer, stouts, porters, you know, those types of beer that were beyond our landscape in the the late 70s and early 80s when, when there were only 40 breweries in this country. So, so is it fair to call microbreweries that have grown up and, and expanded craft brewers? Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's, that's how that's, we... That's the distinction. When you're traveling, it's often just you in a car visiting breweries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and presumably your job uh, is to, to try beers. How do you stay sober through all this? <laughs> well, when I really look forward to trying more beers, more often than not, I take cabs and I have a driver or local people will drive me around. Take us on, on one of your tasting excursions. So you, you, I imagine, sit at the brewery and do you drink a whole, a whole glass? Do you well, sip it? Do you, I mean... Brewmasters and people who have, who, who are, who've made their beer wherever they are in the world take great pride in what they've accomplished. That's part of, you know, what this adventure has really taught me. And more often than not, they'll give me a full glass of beer and mm. they understand, you know, I'll take a few sips. And what I'm interested in is tasting, particularly if it's a new brewery I've never been to, I want to taste a lot of their beers. So, you know, a couple ounces of each of their five or six or seven different beers um, is what I aim to do because I want to experience their culture and what they're all about. And they'll explain to me, well, this beer we said, you know, is 80% of our sales, but these are our special beers that for special markets. And these are the things that we do for our best customers. This is our, these are the beers that we celebrate with and we say thank you to our customers. And, you know, it's all an an expression of their passion and their involvement in this community. And that's, that's what I want to experience. People say, the best beer is free beer. I say the best beer in the world is the beer you pay for. Ah. Because then you get what you want. <laughs> and perhaps the stories behind it. Yes. Yeah. Charlie, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. The e- only thing that's missing is a glass of beer. I was just going to say, <laughs> even though you didn't bring beer, thanks for being with us. <laughs> You're welcome. Glad to be on the show. Charlie Papazian from 2006, author of Microbrewed Adventures, a lupulin-filled journey to the heart and flavor of the world's great craft beers. He lives in Boulder. MSU Denver has named its new brewing education lab after Papazian. It features a three-and-a-half-barrel commercial system to teach students how to craft beer and pursue careers in the brewing industry. And that is Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.